Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. Believe in a power greater than what you are going through. When you don't know what to do. That's right, just keep on breathing from broadcasting from Huntington Beach, California, and normally from New York City, coast to coast, a big L.A. welcome and a big Apple welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver's Caregiver Radio Show at caregiverdave.com, coming to you live from the syndicated all-positive talk radio network, healthylife.net, broadcasting in all 50 states and 135 countries. Typically with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg, but she cannot make it today. Her computer broke. That's sad. But we do. We'll be interviewing Segwena Tansman, and uh, she is a wonderful person. She wrote this book about uh, hope after strokes. And we're going to be talking about that book and about a whole bunch of things that relate to caregiving. And just a reminder that all of our shows are available on HealthyLife.net on-demand page and also on our membership website, CaregiverDave.com. And we are proud to be voted number one podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and one of the top six best podcasts by Caring.com, as well as number three podcasts out of thousands of caregiver podcasts on Feedspot. And if you go right now to CaregiverDave.com and click on the free download page, you'll get three free gifts for you. For you, count them. It will help you thrive as a caregiver instead of just survive. So don't ever let free gifts go unclaimed. That's what my dad always used to say. But hey, before I introduce Segoina, I want to take this opportunity to thank our last guest, Jessica Powell. And you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews, as I said, on HealthyLife.net or our membership website, CaregiverDave.com. All right, enough of that. Segoina Tansman, welcome to the show. We're so honored to have you here today. Thank you. I am so honored to be here. I saved the introduction for yourself. So tell me, just who is Segoina Tansman and why was she put on this earth? <laughs> I love that. That's way better than going through the whole bio thing. <laughs> um, you know, that's funny when you ask that question because usually we're trying to find that answer out. And I think when we start to connect the dots backward and see what our life has been, it gives us a little bit more clarity about that. I think I've been put on this planet to connect, to connect with people, to communicate with people, and, and I think most of all to be that voice when somebody doesn't have that voice. And, you know, funny enough, it ended me in the position of being a speech-language pathologist. <laughs> Who would figure? <laughs> sure. Well, that's awesome. Um, so you wrote a book. Tell us about the book. Yeah. So the book is called Hope After Stroke for Caregivers and Survivors, The Holistic Guide to Getting Your Life Back. So I've been a speech-language pathologist for more than 25 years, as well as a life coach. And the book I wrote because I saw so much chaos and confusion around this topic of healing after recovery. And I wanted... While there's plenty of information out there, there's fantastic information, especially on the National uh, you know, Aphasia Association and the Stroke Association websites, but there wasn't this one 
place, this one go-to place that could tell what pe- that could tell people what happened, what's next, and what now. Uh, in those that chronological time of taking people through this catastrophic event, and I wanted people to have the language to communicate so that they could be a part of their recovery. Wow, that's awesome. Now, what caregiving experience do you have or what experience with stroke do you have? I'm assuming you have some kind of experience about a stroke to write a book about it. As you know, my wife had a stroke yeah. 23 years ago, and she still cannot talk or walk after 23 years, but she can communicate non-verbally through Pictionary Charades, two games I hate, by the way, but I'm learning to love, and she still can't walk, but I bought her this power chair, and now she goes faster than me with my arthritic feet, and I can't keep up with her. So tell us about your experience. So as I mentioned, for more than 25 years, I've worked as a speech-language pathologist in literally every possible setting. So in acute care hospital settings, in rehab settings, in home care settings, in community settings, and in um, rehabilitation center settings, uh, as well as working with the caregivers. Because, you know, as you well know, the stroke survivor most often does have some kind of caregiving support, whether it's a spouse or a parent or even a friend. In most cases, not every case, but it is a dance of who is leading first in the early wow. stages of a stroke, it's going to be the caregiver that's more taking the lead. And ideally though, the whole intention is to transition into finding the independence for that stroke survivor. So they're not just a survivor, but they're a thriver. Yeah, I like those terms. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned holistic, uh, and there's, believe it or not, there may still be people out there who don't know what that word means. Can you describe uh, what do you mean when you say the holistic guide to getting your life back? So, so many people think of the word holistic. And in fact, I had many people tell me, oh, you shouldn't put that word on there. It sounds like <laughs> woo woo. And we're going to be swinging, you know, chickens around our head and breathing out of crystals. And but <laughs> holistic means. You mean we're not? <laughs> yeah. Well, we might do a little of that oh. too. But the holistic really means the whole person. In the hospital, I am often struck by the fact that the speech therapist takes the body from the neck up, the occupational therapist takes the body from the neck to the trunk, and the physical therapist takes the trunk down to the leg, you know, the legs. Wow. And while we sort of, you know, mentally vivisect the person, um, what holistic means is taking into account the mental, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional parts of this whole human being. They're not segmented. Yes, we have to kind of stay in our lane in terms of what the service that we provide, but we really need to, as a team, as our, as an individual provider, treat the person as a whole. And that now does include standard allopathic Western medicine, but it does also involve integrative medicine and some of the less mainstream types of medicine that are really beneficial to stroke survivors. Mm -hmm. Now, being a speech pathologist, um, I'm sure you've seen many people like my wife who has global aphasia. Uh, I've seen other people who have different symptoms uh, from hers. 
she can understand everything coming in is fine. She can read, amazingly enough. But everything got tweaked when she wants to have the output. You know, her writing, she has to remember how to spell those words, and she can't uh, write in sentences. You know, the verbs and the adjectives kind of disappear. And she knows what she wants to say. It's like it's in her mind, but it just won't come out like a stutterer, right? Uh, what's really going on with global aphasia, and how does it all work? Because she thought for a long time that we were just playing jokes on her because when she spoke her gibberish, she heard the words coming out of her mouth. And we had to tape her on a tape recorder to convince her that we don't know what you're saying. Quit getting angry. We're not playing jokes. Well, that's amazing, actually, that she could hear and understand that what she was saying was not what she had intended because that's even that's a higher common? No, that's even a higher level of awareness. So the brain is so complicated in the way aphasia shows up or the way damage shows up in a person's life. And there, you know, I say to people, look at your fingertips and you will know why each of you is so different. Your own fingerprint is different. Your brain is different. And the way the damage has affected a person's brain, it, it's almost like, you know, a doily. And you, you could sprinkle stuff on a doily and that pattern, if you move it just a, a nad, you know, a mill an inch, whatever, over, the damage will show up differently. So aphasia is a very complicated topic from, because it's not just the speech output, right? Aphasia has to do with all of language. And all of language includes what we understand and hear and process, how we speak, what our verbal, I mean, our nonverbal communication is, our gestural language, our tone, our prosody, our reading and writing. Yeah, can you hear me? So it, it involves so many different components. And, and then what was that brain before the injury? Every person is so uniquely different. Some are more verbal, some are less verbal. Some are more auditory, some are more visual. It's a, it's a very complicated process. I'm glad to see that her gestural system is working. She's amazing non-verbally. I mean, I. We've been to a restaurant, this is before the pandemic, you know, waiting for our table, and and she just goes off on her own. You know, she's very independent. That's the way I made her because her mother wanted to turn her into an invalid by doing things for her. Oh, let me get that for you. Oh, I'll do this. Oh, I'll do this. No, she can do it herself. She's reaching for something on top of her. Come on, a little higher. Go on your toes. You know, I'll push you a little. And <laughs> that's why one of the reasons she became so independent. She was always independent. And so, you know, she wanted to do everything. Um, but I was hearing her, you know, laughing, and she has a very loud laugh. And I'm looking <laughs> over there, and she's having this conversation with this guy, this old guy, and they're slapping each other on the back. And, you know, he has no idea. They were doing this for 20 minutes. She has no idea that she cannot speak. We went to the New York Publicity Summit to, to uh, interview with uh, producers to be on their shows, you know. And uh, they came straight over to her because she's radiant in her wheelchair. She looks like the Queen of England. And they just start up a conversation. She just goes right into it. You know, and she has a few tools in her belt. She knows sounds and gestures and expressions and touching. And and uh, they, then they come to me and I explain that she can't uh, speak. And they say, well, what do you mean? I was having a conversation. <laughs> I said, no, 
No, you were communicating with her because 85% of communication is nonverbal, you know. And we probably communicate better than most normal people in a marriage. Uh, we still can't get about uh, 10 or 15% of things. We just have to let it go. But um, in the beginning, I used to pretend I didn't understand things that I didn't want to talk about, but I don't <laughs> <get> anymore. <laughs> but um, you're right. The brain is a, is a weird thing. And uh, is there hope for my wife after 23 years that her speech will get better? Um, uh, we met a guy after 10 years. All of a sudden, he just started talking. After 10 years, and that gave her hope. But, you know, it's been a couple of decades now and, uh, and some uh, spare change, and she's still, uh, her speech has not improved. Um, what is going on in that brain? And it, won't it eventually learn how to talk, eventually? So I'm going to answer that first question, but before I answer that question, I want to go back to something you said, two things you said. Number one, that she was communicating. She was communicating through her gestures. They were having a meaningful interaction. And you're 100% right in terms of most of our communication is nonverbal. It's our gestures. It's our tone of voice. It's our affect. It's our uh, all, all those kinds of things that we take for granted, we just sort of intuit that when you are having a communication, so for example, if you're watching a pantomime, you can completely understand the story without a word being said. Or a said. silent movie. <laughs> right, or a silent movie. And in fact, many times I, I try and resource people to experiences they might have had when their children were pre-verbal, when they could intuit what their children needed, what they wanted to communicate. And you mentioned one other thing, and I think this is really important, and that is the biggest problem in a marriage in general, whether a person has aphasia or not, is communication. So, you know, there's that basic. So to answer, to go now and answer your question, who knows? The answer is who knows. Um, I love Les Brown. He said, doctors have the diagnosis. God has the prognosis. Mm. And I can't, you know, if if I were at, if you were asking me from a clinical point of view, what's the likelihood of your wife having her speech return, my likelihood would say it's not great. It's not great. It would be literally a miracle. We wouldn't typically see that. That's not the typical course. That said, I humbly say, I don't know what the prognosis is. Nobody really does. But then I would also turn you to what value are you getting as you are? What tricks yeah. are you learning? How are yeah. you resourcing this communication as this is? Yeah, and we believe in miracles, and uh, you know, but we also believe in turning your lemonade, uh, your lemons into lemonade, and and uh, we have learned a lot from this experience. I mean, I wouldn't give it up for a million dollars; wouldn't want to repeat it for a billion dollars. Yeah, right. I learned a lot from my dog. I have a new respect for my dog because he communicates so well. He will tell you when it's time to go out. He will tell you when he's hungry. He will tell you when he wants to be pet. He doesn't say a word. Right. And that, that's what my wife and my dog have in common. I have yeah. to, like, interpret their communication, their nonverbal communication. And uh, yeah, I just take it for granted because it's just the new normal. And, uh, you know, a lot of people feel sorry for me. I says, no, don't. I'm, I'm happy. Our love has never been deeper. Our marriage has never been better. So, um, what And I love... 
I do love the fact that she's able to have these independent conversations without you. I Mm. think that is a a huge sign of independence that I often don't see with aphasic patients because they feel like they can't communicate. They enter a a conversation like that they're not going to be successful. She's very bold, uh, A-type personality, and, and any timid person who has aphasia or a speech impediment or whatever uh, traumatic brain injury, be encouraged that if this woman can speak uh, non-verbally, then you can, you know. And yet very few people uh, think uh, that she's not normal. I mean, she dresses, she takes care of herself, she she has pride in her appearance, and uh, a lot of people just let themselves go. Now, you talk about uh, the difference between advocacy and caregiving. Explain that. Sure. So I think, again, when you're in the hospital and this event just has happened, as a caregiver, you have to be a really strong advocate. A person that is in the hospital (laughs) needs to be in really good condition. I always say, you have to be in great condition if you're going to go into the hospital because it's not an easy place to be. And so advocacy there is really important in terms of making sure the from the very basics of making sure that therapy sessions are delivered for example if a person is sleeping you know you have to know that they're going to make up that session you have to be you have to make friends with that um case manager because the case manager is the one that's going to either allow therapy to continue or discharge the patient so you have right. to really get in good partnership with that case manager so that you can work with the insurance and push the insurance to make sure that you get enough therapy. Um, Advocacy takes place from anything from dietary needs when you're filling out the diet menu for the person. Regrettably in the hospitals, patients with aphasia are still very poorly understood and having something as simple as a menu being filled out may need a lot of help or at least advocacy to talk to the nurse to help that patient fill it out if the caregiver can't be there. When I like to also say that caregiving, as I mentioned, should be this dance where eventually the person takes more responsibility for his or her life. That's the ideal. You want to switch places. You want to be the leader, but you want to switch places in this dance and let the survivor become the thriver as much as possible. You did a great job with your wife, it sounds like. You you. allowed her to push herself, reach a little higher. You know, whereas I think one of the downsides of caregiving is that they overhelp and they create this learned dependency right. which we want to completely they avoid. create an invalid yeah yeah that's what the, the technical OT term for that is called learned dependency and, uh-huh. it's, and it really is a limiting factor that you want yeah. to absolutely avoid for for both people and you talk about advocacy uh you know i have a bad story about that you know the paramedics came when she was having a stroke and She's having a stroke. I, they say, where do you want to send her? Because we had a close hospital five minutes away and a big medical center uh, 15 minutes away. And I didn't know what to say. And I, uh, the worst decision of my life was handing over that um, decision over to these two guys who I didn't know who they were. 
But I said, I don't know, where would you take your wife if she was having a stroke? And so they decided on the smaller uh, hospital, privately owned, which was a mistake. You know, they didn't have any of the latest equipment. And because of that, she lost her speech. The three-hour window was missed and uh, the paralysis and so on. But um, if I'd have known then what I know now, and I felt so guilty about that for giving up and not being a good advocate, but I've since but you were myself. you you did ask the right question. You said, "Where would you go if your wife was having a stroke?" Yes, but I and I assumed that they were professionals that they could have handled it. But that'll just show you, just because someone's a professional, just because someone's a doctor, a nurse, a, a, a paramedic driver, doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> that they're the best in their field. You know, absolutely, there's rotten apples in every bunch, and you're about to hand over, especially when you get to the hospital too. You know. They didn't tell me. I wasn't in the loop. I didn't know what they were doing. And and once we got transferred to the other hospital, I met another uh, uh, neurosurgeon, not a neurosurgeon, but, um, you know, the the doctors that care for them, uh, the brain. I'm losing neurologist. My, uh, the, the neurologist. The neurologist. And he says, oh, my God, you know, I can't believe he didn't include you in all <sighs> this because you're the one who has to deal with this. He says, I, I include the spouse every step of the way, you know, don't, I don't just make decisions on your behalf, I, I give you options and so on. And so, yeah, when you get to the hospital, you need to be your patient's advocate because don't assume it's all just going to happen and they're all professionals because it doesn't always. Absolutely. That's the, really the first reason that I wrote this book, because I wanted people to have the language to communicate with. And, you know, here you are in this catastrophic event and you're emotionally wrought, but now you're also supposed to try and have a crash course in neurology <laughs> and anatomy and physiology and, and, and know this language that you absolutely don't know. So I yeah. simplify the terms. I give people the words to know so that they can communicate with their doctors and ask meaningful questions. You as the caregiver are going to spend more time with your loved one in that hospital. You're going to notice things sooner than any of the therapists. All that information right. should be documented in the records. That's the other part of advocacy. In the hospital, you really have to be that mouthpiece and sometimes yep. that pain in the neck. But in order to get the best care yeah. and the best outcome, absolutely. So we're going to take a break now. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver, has just released his sixth book entitled It's My Life Too, Thrive to Stay Alive as a Caregiver. It was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first, but just don't know how. Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out, thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere and at caregiverdave.com. And we're back with Sequoia Tansman, 
What wow. a name. <laughs> you draw that out. <laughs> and I'm Dave Nassani, the caregiver's caregiver at caregiverdave.com. And we're talking to the author of, what's the name of your book? Hope After Stroke for Caregivers and Survivors, The Holistic nice Guide to Getting Your Life Back. Yes. So how long did it take you to write that book? And why did you write the book? So it took me a little over a year to write the book, which I think was kind of fast considering I was working full time. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was pretty amazed by that. Honestly, when I decided to write this book, I said, I'm going to write the book the way that I want the book to be, the way I want to read the book. I wanted it to sound and feel like I was sitting next to you as a therapist as your friend, guiding you through this process. I want it to be so simple and easy to understand, not dumbed down, but simple. I wanted you to be able to digest it. I wanted it to be in the language that you would understand because mm. I wanted you as the reader to feel smart and empowered. Mm -hmm. That's I why I, I really that book. wrote it. Yeah, I wish no I had kidding. That book. I wish I had, I had that book when everything was normal, right? Everybody should know what could happen, right? I'm 66 now, and, you know, it could happen to me. It could happen to anybody. It could so, happen to anybody, and you're right. And I will say the other thing so many people have said about this book, the principles that I have in here are not just related to stroke because first and foremost, I'm a life coach as well. And so first and foremost, a stroke survivor is a human being. A caregiver is a human being. Yep. So I use all the best practices. I was trained by Tony Robbins, Brooke Castillo, Mitch Matthews, Dawson Church. I have a lot of practice and time in as a life coach. And so I use the best practices on the planet for helping people heal as a whole person, first and foremost. Wow. You're trained pretty good. Um, I also am in the same circle as you're in because I, I speak and I'm a coach as well. And uh, it's fun to help people. Now, not everybody wants to be helped. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I used to give my coaching away free. And I realized that people who get free coaching, it's like free advice, they put a value on it of zero. And they don't, uh, you know, they have no skin in the game. It's like the doctor charges you $100 for an appointment whether you show up or not versus the doctor who doesn't. Guess who's going to have a lot of missed appointments, you know what I mean? Yeah, right, exactly. So what are your best tips for helping caregivers who are notorious for not caring for themselves, who are notorious for not eating right, sleeping right, uh, you name it? Um, what can you do to help caregivers, well, first of all, stay alive because 30% of them die before their loved ones do and stay out of the hospital because the rest of them get sicker than the ones they're caring for, eventually needing a caregiver of their own. How can you help? That's right. That's that's fantastic. Great question. And I'm going to tell you, the things I'm going to tell you are simple, but they're not easy, right? <laughs> we all know simple does not necessarily mean easy. And we know that common sense is not always common practice. Amen. And, you know, it's simple to say, how would what's one health tip for you? Well, drink more water. Well, that's simple, but not necessarily easy. So um, as you take it, yeah. So the, my best tip for caregivers, as you said, for the very first one, is absolutely make sure that they take care of themselves. And I have a little practice, a ritual. I'm actually working on the workbook companion journal to this for the caregiver. So I wrote the book for both the caregiver and the survivor, but I'm writing now two separate 
workbook manuals so that the caregiver can walk through this process together. Wow, you're ambitious. Yeah, no, I am. But again, I'm making it simple because obviously caregivers don't have a lot of time to sit down and, you know, eat bonbons, right? That's the KISS KISS, uh, acronym. Keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) Right, exactly. But so, for example, I I like to call it the warm up the oven. So if you're thinking about baking a cake, you can have the best ingredients in the world. But what's the most important thing you need to do? If you want that cake to rise, you have to warm up the oven. You have to preheat that oven. And for caregivers, it's exactly the same thing. You have to get yourself centered first before you can give to anyone else. You have to carve out that self-care before you can be a caregiver to anyone. Because a used up, spent, frustrated, and exhausted caregiver is of no help to anyone and in fact, could do more damage in reality. So that's the number one thing. We're talking about five minutes before your day starts, five minutes to a half hour, but everybody can take five minutes to get themselves centered. I, in my recovery workbook, there's some practices for meditation, for mindfulness, uh, for journaling, for prayer, many different options, whatever it is that gets you centered as a core ritual that is non-negotiable is such an important first step. I think we talked about another one, and that is, you know, how do we lessen the burden of a caregiver? Don't overhelp. You know, when we try to do so much for somebody else, it's creates a learned dependency for them, but it also adds more to you. You have to be able to stand back, let somebody do something at their pace and at their time, even if it's more lengthy in time. You just have to not overhelp. Let the survivor, let your loved one do what they can do. I mean, we also rob them of that self-esteem when we do so much for them because that message says, You can't do it, and you'll never be able to do it. Another one is um, find things to laugh about. You have got to find humor in your daily life. And I know people can say, that's ridiculous. You don't live my life. You don't know. And I, I get it. I don't know your life, but I do know from I've worked with thousands of patients, thousands of them, who have taught me this. And I look, there's a chapter in my book called The Secret Sauce of Recovering. And I look at those five characteristics, and they're consistently the same from from everybody. And humor is one of those amazing ones. It sounds like you and your wife laugh a lot. I do. (laughs) And you laugh about things that are stupid or dumb. I had a patient once that, um, it's a little off-color story, but, you know, he was physically not that well balanced. He was learning to stand and balance. And as he would stand to urinate, he would often miss the toilet. And he just had to find a way to laugh about that because you could either go down the route of this is completely humiliating or you can find something funny about that. And in fact, this is one of the other tips that I think is a great caregiver tip for your own mental wellness. And that is I have people set alarms on their phone as a a reminder. I tell them, choose a time of day where you know you're going to be kind of down in the dumps or 
just overstressed. You know, happy hour is named happy hour for that very reason, <laughs> right? That's typically when everybody is done being happy. So we euphemistically <laughs> call it happy hour. So pick a time like that. Nice uh, sounding alarm, a different alarm than any of your other phone alarms, mm. and label that alarm with some sort of self-coaching thing. So for that gentleman that was missing the, the urinal, you know, he would <laughs> he would coach himself by saying, find something to laugh about. And all of a sudden you're like like Pavlo's dogs. You hear that alarm go off and you look at this self-coaching, you could do this, you're doing the best job you can, take a breath, be mindful, whatever positive message you can give yourself in that moment. After a period of time, you'll hear that alarm and it'll instantaneously trigger that neurological response in you to resource yourself. Wow. This is we're going to take another break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. One arm, one leg, 100 words. Overcoming unbelievable hardships is about Charlene, a stroke survivor. Back in 1996, Charlene was a healthy, normal, very active 52-year-old woman whose amazing talents resemble that of both a Martha Stewart and a Wonder Woman. But all that changed when she suffered a massive stroke that left her severely speech-impaired and paralyzed on the right side. Who am I? My name is David. I've had the privilege of being Charlene's husband since 1975. We had a wonderful, fairy tale, storybook-like courtship that culminated in our marriage a year later. Charlene had just come out of a marriage where after 10 years, she received two black eyes and a broken nose by her former husband when he came home high on speed. Charlene believed in no second chances of any kind for abuse, so she left. Finding herself all alone in the world with her five and 10-year-old daughters, Cynthia Lorraine and Deborah Lynn, she started raising them by herself for the next two years. Then fate brought us all together. After falling in love with Charlene, Cindy, and Debbie, our love then produced Rebecca Elizabeth. We had a wonderful, normal life for the next 20 years. But today, things are very different for everyone. How about the reaction of nine-time Grammy and Devil Award recipient, the godfather of contemporary gospel Christian music, Andre Crouch? Charlene just won't let the promises of God go, and she has not let her circumstances get in the way of her faith. She's not just a survivor, she's more than a conqueror, as the Bible states. You'll be encouraged by her testimony, regardless of what you're going through. Available everywhere. And we're back with Seguina Tansman. I'm Dave Nassani, the caregiver is a caregiver on the Caregiver Dave Show. And we're talking about stroke and... Um, Let's talk about hope. Uh, why should someone with a stroke have hope? Yeah, that's a great question. Because and why should their caregiver have hope too? Because it's just as hard for the. Well, it's debatable whether who's got the rough job, the worst job, the stroke survivor, or the person who cares for the stroke survivor. I think it's debatable. <laughs> but it is why debatable. should they both have hope? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that hope part. I think the most important part to realize is how resilient the brain actually is. Even in the presence of damage, the brain is incredibly resilient. And this again is where that, that concept of doctors have the diagnosis, God or whomever you believe in has the prognosis. And I will tell you, even my agnostic patients, um, the ones that believe in 
doctors and medicine, those ones that have this faith about something bigger than themselves have had the greatest recovery. So why is there hope after stroke? Typically, we would think, well, the less severe the stroke, the more likely they're going to recover. And that is not always the case. So again, if we go back to what are the, I like to call it in this chapter, the non-evidence-based, purely anecdotal, but actual factors I've seen repeated thousands of times with stroke survivors that create the hopeful outcome is that they have a reason to be here. They feel that they're needed to be here. Faith is the first one. You know, faith is the first one, whether it's God, and I've seen everything from Krishna to Allah to, you know, to source energy, to no God at all, to doctors and to medicine, that belief that there's something bigger than them, that that belief that somebody needs them. And the idea that they have a purpose here. Yeah. Um, humor, gratitude, persistence, and determination cause that recovery to happen. I have story after story. Can I tell you a little story about some of my sure. people? Yeah, I totally agree with you because uh, you know my wife went through a grief process, and I wondered if she'd ever come out of it. You know, she was angry and bitter, and you know it was just miserable. I almost left her. But I hung in there, and uh, I went to a caregiver support group, and they taught me to put my needs first, and I just started doing that, being selfish, you know. But they gave me permission, so I did it, and she slowly started coming around. Our love was rekindled. And what made her come out of it was she would smile, point up to heaven, and say, God, you know, one of the few words she knows. And she found peace with her maker that there was a purpose. He, if he didn't take her life, he wasn't done with her yet. So go ahead. Yeah. And I've seen that time and time again. I've even worked with people that were severe alcoholics mm. prior to their stroke. Mm. And their stroke left them paralyzed and with a lot of difficulties. And they would say, I am so grateful that stroke helped me lose this alcoholism. Right. So you can only imagine if a stroke is considered an upgrade <laughs> to your <laughs> life, right? Wow. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty profound. I I know another woman that I work with, an amazing woman, who was in a paralyzing depression after her baby died while she was nursing her oh. infant child. And for 15 years, she was in this paralyzing depression. She had a stroke and she lost, the, I mean, she, when I first met her, she was paralyzed. She couldn't speak. She was eating bizarre things. She was in terrible, terrible condition. And as she improved over time, she came to an awareness that the stroke relieved her of the depression. She started quilting as a form of therapy. Her hands had been paralyzed. She started quilting. She learned to ride a bike again. She learned to drive. She began to swim. This woman began to swim at the age of 40. Well, let me go back a little bit with her story because not only did she have a stroke, but when she had her stroke, they realized she was in severe kidney failure. So she then started dialysis three times a day. I think maybe in the beginning she was going every day. But she had a port in her chest for over a year, and she swore. She said, when I get this port out, I'm going <laughs> swimming. And for you, know, you and I, it's like, okay, well, 
she did not know how to swim. She was 49 years old and did not know how to swim. Mm. She went to the Y, started splashing around. Somebody noticed it looked like she wanted to swim. They anonymously bought swim lessons for her. She started to swim. Then she YouTube how to swim. She ended up swimming three times a day before wow. dialysis. I mean, this woman was amazing. When I saw her, she looked as if there was no hope whatsoever. Another gentleman I worked with was a Stanford-educated Superior Court judge. And when I first met him, he said nothing. The words that came out of his mouth were pure gibberish, probably like your wife. Didn't make one coherent sound. Now, when we look at a person like that and going back to their work, we think there's no way, right? I mean, that's the initial impression. It's like he's fallen too far. He'll never come back. Well, again, this man had everything in terms of grit and determination, in terms of faith, in terms of a purpose to be here, in terms of humor. Before I could understand a word he said, he had us laughing. He would roll his eyes. He made fun of us while he was still really really at such a basic level and wow. one day I remember I was so excited I was I showed him five objects and he before couldn't even point to an object point to the cup couldn't do it and he pointed to all five cups and I went running down the hospital you know corridor I was so excited to tell his wife I went you know he's he he identified all these objects and she looked at me you know that slacked slackened face and said oh hon we have way different baselines. <laughs> and she was right. You know, I knew she was right, but I was also right. And let me fast forward <laughs> Baby the steps. story. Baby yeah. steps. Let me fast forward the story. He did two years of intensive therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy. He was left-handed. He learned, he was left-handed. He learned to use his right hand. Of course, his right side was paralyzed. Um, he got his car tricked out. He started going back to court, listening first, mm. underwent such ext extensive neuropsych testing to make sure he was competent to be in his position again. Long story short, he went back to the bench as a superior court judge after passing wow. all of those tests and practiced for another 10 years. This was wow. a guy we could not have imagined could have done that. And I see case after case like that. If you go on to any online support group, you will hear hundreds, thousands of people say, my doctor said I would never walk or talk again, and I'm going up the stairs and I'm doing this and that. And that's not to bash doctors. We need sure. our doctors. We love our <laughs> doctors, especially in the hospital. But, but they only see a snapshot, not the big fullness of what life yeah. has to offer. Another break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Anytime we suffer loss, we grieve. And a lot of people don't realize what even the grief process is. But it could be five to seven steps ranging from denial. I don't believe this is happening. Anger. Oh my gosh, I'm so upset this is happening to a form of bargaining, how can I get out of this? To depression, which is a very serious thing because that often leads to suicide. And then finally, finally, after you realize you have no more control over your situation and you're totally okay with the new normal that it brings, that wonderful, wonderful place called acceptance. 
we're back with Yay. Seguena Tensman. And um, I'm having such a good time here. The time just flies when you're having fun, right? I am having fun. So I could talk about my amazing people all day long because truly they are the ones that inspire me. I feel like I yeah. learned so much from them. Before before my wife had a stroke, there was a person in, in our church, a very wealthy man who was a president of Car Nation Company, a vice president, something like that. And he was brilliant. I mean, the guy was a genius. And all of a sudden, he had aphasia, just like my wife uh, later had. And I would try, you know, he was he was like my wife. He was always going out there and trying to make a conversation. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable because it's like, I felt so bad for him. He he wanted to talk so badly, and you could see him struggling. And and I didn't know how to react. I didn't know what to say. You know, after a while, you can only say so many things, and then you run out of words. And I see that happen sometimes with my wife. Uh, not all the the time, but mostly with strangers, the people who know her. They have no problem at all because they you know, they're talking on a deeper level. How do you talk to somebody who has aphasia? I mean, wh- how do you? How do you do it without feeling awkward? You have to, number one, make sure that you're facing that person so that you're gaining all of that nonverbal communication as well. I think one of the simpler ways to, you have to find out what that person is. Sometimes a yes, no is a great way to go, but sometimes yes, no gets very confusing for, for certain people. So sometimes giving multiple choice options is a, opportunity. Um, You have to kind of hone in on what the topic is. And you have to ask permission too, really from them. Do you want me to help fill in for you? Ask them. Do you want me to wait? You have to definitely allow more processing time for both understanding the question as well as giving them time to respond. I think it does help if you recast back to them what you understand and check in and make sure you say, did I get that right? Right? So that you're kind of confirming. Uh, You want to speak in a normal tone. You know, people with aphasia all the time say, I'm not deaf. (laughs) So yelling doesn't help. Just like when we're in a foreign country, right? (laughs) When somebody's not understanding us, we tend to talk louder. Well, they're not deaf. They just can't say what they need to say. Um, That extra processing time, making sure that you're in an environment that's low stimulus, in other words, not a lot of competing stimuli. It's going to be much more difficult to have a conversation in a noisy environment with background TV, um, with other things going on, because very often a person who's had an injury to the brain has a difficult time inhibiting other noise information mm-hmm. and and that is fatiguing right so that's another thing you gone are the days where you can speak to your spouse or your loved one from a different room it's just not going to happen <laughs> that you is know, true that it just just can't happen so you have to but be they always that. do it to she always does it to me though <laughs> <Thanks>. right <laughs> right there Exactly. <laughs> right. We, we get so used to that kind of speech that we have to realize that it is a different thing, that we do need to see each other face to face. And um, the 
uh, sometimes a person can be aided if they have a piece of paper there. Sometimes if they have the ability to draw a little picture. I worked with a guy in the early stages of his recovery. Literally, this man, not only did he, did he not make any sense, but the sound of his language did not even sound like English. It sounded like alien sounds I had never heard. Wow. He was the most unusual man. But he could draw little pictures, and he really had a fully intact brain inside. With It was so complicated. What he could convey was actually astounding. So sometimes a little you know, book by them where they could draw something or even sometimes write. Sometimes sometimes people with aphasia have an ability to write a letter. There is a lot of support and scaffolding that you as a communication partner has to provide right. for different people. So it's, it's, it's not an easy process for sure. I can't believe where the time has gone. We've totally run out of time. But uh, I'd like you to share uh, how people can contact you uh, if they have more information or just want to speak to a speech pathologist or read your book or buy your book. Uh, how do we get a hold yeah. of you? Well, first of all, you can get a hold of me um, at hope-stroke.com. That's my website, hope-stroke.com. And on there, there's some little freebie resources to, to give away. Um, People can reach me through my email, which is my first name, T-S-G-O-Y. No, sorry. Let's take that <laughs> back again. It's so my you have a tough hope. Name. No, it's so silly. I don't know why I forgot this. <laughs> it's hope after stroke now. Duh. All hope right. after stroke now. No commas or no spaces. Hope after stroke now at gmail.com. And um, I'd love also to... If they contact me through hopeafterstrokenow at gmail.com, I can give them a sample of a 21-day mini journal. It's for the stroke survivor. I'm actually working currently awesome. on the caregiver's one. And uh, my book is available in audiobook, too, for busy caregivers. So they don't have to sit down and read. They can put it in their earphones and take a walk during their self-care or cool. drive and listen to it. And uh, my book is on Amazon and wherever other books are sold. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I learned a lot. I wish I knew you before the stroke. I wish I read your book before the stroke. But, you know, we play the cards we're dealt. We so do. God bless you, and thank you so much for coming on. And we'll see everybody next week. Bye-bye. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise. Like the birds will never sing